Hello, everybody, and welcome to the annual politics uh, news of the week review. I am Mr. Hyde. I'm Dr. Mackenzie. I am Dr. Stanley. Hello, I am Charlie. I am Marky. And I'm Charlotte. And this week, once again, we are six. Uh, we've had a little bit of a change to our fantasy lineup. Out goes Sophia, out go Tara, out go Dan, and out goes uh, Will. And in their place, we've got Dr. Stanley uh, making his, I think, second appearance in the podcast. Uh, Charlie Cobb making his third appearance. Archie making his second. And we have a debut for Charlotte. So welcome to you all. Are we, are we happy with our uh, new fantasy team, Dr. McKenzie? I'm pretty happy. I think this may well be a pretty strong lineup. I think. Well, we're certainly hoping for some plenty of fantasy points this week, right? <laughs> well, so, having said that, though, wants... the bar has been set pretty high. I think in previous weeks. Very high bar, but we've got some big hitters around the table this week. <laughs> so, first thing, what, what have we found this week? Then, who'd like to start us off? News of the week. What sort of interesting stories have we got? Archie Spurway. Archie, what? Well, start us off, please. Thank you. Yeah, so I've been reading um, about Scottish news, as usual. Um, I read a story about the Nicola Sturgeon versus Alex Salmon battle, which is going on. Uh, It's been going on for a while now. Um, And Salmon has now said that um, he may not make an appearance to put his evidence forward and will instead host a press conference, which is all quite important with the Scottish election coming up this year because they need to get things through in time. Um, Because obviously if the accusations are true, then um, Sturgeon will be expected to step down. So it's all um, lining up quite nicely. So we didn't need Dr. Uh, Mackenzie to be banging the drum for Scotland. We had Archie <laughs> doing it straight off the bat this week. Um, so a little bit of context around uh, the battle of politics within the SNP right now between Nicola Sturgeon and Alex Salmon. So, Dr. Mackenzie, any thoughts about what's going on up, up north? Yeah, I mean, it's all quite interesting what's going on in the SNP at the moment, isn't it? There's a lot of division. Um, obviously, the Sturgeon-Salmon divide is... Uh, at the top of the bill. There are also divisions elsewhere in the party. Um, I don't know if you noticed last week, Joanna Cherry was sacked from the Westminster front bench. Um, She's been a stern critic of Sturgeon, uh, particularly over her handling of uh, the second independence referendum issue. Charlie Cobb, what what are you thinking about that? I'm looking at the story earlier. There's just that BBC's got a lovely image of Salmon Sturgeon deeply looking to each other's eyes as if they're about to share an intimate kiss and it's just interesting how that's completely deteriorated and also i read earlier that salmon fans and in, in the in the snp section in, in part in westminster uh, all three of them don't hold a front bench position which i and they have now cherries uh and that just shows the divide that's come about not just between salmon and surgeon but the divide in the party as a whole so a lot of the context around this is uh, the allegations against um, Alex Salmon and what Nicholas Sturgeon did or didn't know. And they're all rumours also of a sort of a WhatsApp group uh, known as the uh, Vietnam uh, group that have been potentially SNP uh, colleagues who've been briefing against Alex Salmon. So lots of intrigue there. Uh, Archie, you're up in Scotland. What, what are you making of all this? Yeah, well, um, it's quite interesting. I've seen a poll recently that the majority of Scottish people and SNP supporters think that if um, Alex Salmon's accusations are right about Nicola Sturgeon, then she should resign, um, which would obviously be big. She's kind of been the rock of the SNP party. Um, But it's interesting. I think the unionist parties, if they um, can capitalise on it, then could do quite well. But I don't actually think 
so that we'll have as big an impact as everyone thinks. Uh, Dr. Stanley, what are your thoughts about events up north? Um, so, I mean, my attitude is, is, frankly, I think it's going to matter very, very little to the electoral chances of the SNP uh, in May 2021. Um, people, of course, are going to vote primarily um, on whether or not they favour a second independence referendum or whether they would um, rather Scotland stay within the union. I think it will still win enough constituency seats with one or two sort of regional seats um, to enable it to govern if not as a majority party, then certainly um, with, a, with, with a sort of healthy, a healthy minority government. So, so, you know, whatever happens between, you know, Nicola uh, and Alec and everybody else, I think it's going to be um, a, a, a sort of a sideshow compared to the big show of independence versus unionism. OK, back to Archie, but you can't mention the rugby, Archie, OK? <laughs> I'll try not to. Um, interestingly, I'm not sure if any of you have seen, there's actually been a new party formed quite recently in Scotland. It's called Alliance for Unity. And um, what they're trying to do is unite the unity vote, um, which is quite controversial because some of the Tory and Labour MPs are now talking against them um, because they don't want competition, so it's all heating up. You've all gone with sort of the big picture story about this and, the, and its linked to the elections, um, these coming elections in May. But something I find quite interesting about this is the role of Nicholas Sturgeon's husband mm. in, in this uh, situation. And that world of sort of cronyism that's sort of going on within Scottish po politics and the, way, way, the extent to which these people are actually being held to account. Um, um, I was just going to say that there have been allegations that Nicola Sturgeon has broken the ministerial code over this, um, largely in that she has allegedly lied to the Scottish Parliament about various off-the-record meetings that she had with Salmond and some of his advisers. Um, and that, I think, you know, links into what you're saying about this idea of scrutiny and accountability. I don't know if Archie has noticed anything. He's on the ground up in Scotland. I don't know if he's seen anything different being reported in the press up there. Yeah, well, um, it's all quite odd, really, because obviously they live together. There's been quite a lot of, um, well, if you live together, surely you've been talking about this. Um, when they're trying to defend each other and claiming they don't know what happened. So it's all a bit, it's all a bit fishy, really. This idea of actually speaking to people you live with, that's a bit new, isn't it? <laughs> anyway, so we've got then the, the, the picture of Scotland. Uh, Dr. Uh, Dr. Stanley mentioned the fact that we've got some upcoming elections this year. So another story, a, a very concerning story that sort of hit the headlines again this weekend, is one I think, Charlotte, you were, you were looking at. I'm researching any current and past news stories on knife gang slash, slash drug crime in the UK and links with that to police brutality for lack of a better term. So, and there were, well, this weekend, there was once again another sort of spate of um, pretty appalling stabbings in London. Um, I think that's the 23rd uh, fatality due to a stabbing in London this year alone. Uh, which is an extremely worrying statistic. And I wonder if anyone would have any thoughts about how this would uh, potentially impact on the London mayoral elections that would, may be taking place, hopefully, uh, this May. Charlie? Well, yeah, I think if you look at the bare figures, I mean, knife crime in London has been rising since 2015. It's reasonably steeply. But then again, it's not a lot. You can't really just sort of say... Well, when it says you're affecting the mayoral elections, you know, there's no easy way to say, oh, this is because of Sadiq Khan, because you look at sort of, I mean, just recently, was it last year or a couple of years ago, he put in was about £200 million into the Met Police in, in London, trying to focus on knife crime. And the numbers seem to be, well, maybe slowing down their increase, but still increasing nonetheless. 
But I still don't think it will have a huge impact uh, on the election. Sean Bailey, the Conservative candidate, has got a couple of allegations against him for being a bit odd. Well, he's a Tory, Charlie, so being odd's a given. He's just, I mean, if you ask lots of Londoners, I bet many of them probably haven't even heard of him. And obviously we know London to be what the liberal hub that it is. I, I don't think it'll affect the outcome. I mean, normally, as you see for any sort of politician going in for a second term for a re-election, they normally lose a little bit of votes. And maybe we'll see a little bit of swing towards, maybe not even the Conservatives, maybe a swing towards the Lib Dems or the Greens, who seem to always have quite a big um, presence in London. But I, I don't think it'll affect the outcome. I think it will quite easily secure a, a second term. So, Charlie, you see an easy second term for uh, Sadiq in London. Um, Dr. McKenzie, what, 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 what were you going to add there? Um, I was just going to pick up on, on what Charlie's saying, that I think um, Sadiq Khan is still leading with, I think, about a 21-point lead, which is pretty phenomenal, actually. And some people are talking about him breaking records with this particular win, some even going as far to say that he might win the first round of voting straight out, which would be highly unusual. And, and, and Charlotte, from, from the research you've done and from, from what we saw has happened again tragically this weekend, what, 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 what do you think, therefore, a, a government should be looking to do to try to stem this, um, stem this horrific uh, sort of spate of stabbings that we're seeing? Um, I think the government is doing an all right job at the moment with their rehabilitation programme. But and also I've seen there's been like a quite a lot of bins being set up all across London, which are places where people affiliated with gangs can go drop off their knives. But obviously there has still been a increase in stabbing. So um, what about the, the, the impact or otherwise of this drill music? Somebody much younger than me and much more trendy than me might be able to uh, explain this. So Charlotte, <laughs> have you about drill music and its impact? Um, I was reading this story uh, of something that happened on Tuesday last week where a 20-year-old man believed to have links to the drill rap scene was shot dead in a drive-by shooting. Um, And drill music has captured headlines since it started to emerge in the UK in 2012, I'm pretty sure. Um, With its often provocative lyrics, it's been blamed by the police for fueling violence it has also increasingly been used as evidence in trials with courts and allegations as the lyrics incite gang rivalries i remember at least two years ago there were these two drill rappers called skendo and am who were put on trial two two years ago after lyrics of intended violence against a gang in i think north london called moscow 17 where in the song AM taunts members by names and now both rappers are banned from mentioning rival gangs or going into rival territories. I think there's been nearly 70 trials across the UK from um, from 2004, sorry, where drill and rap were used as evidence. Um, and I personally think that prosecutors who use drill music in their court cases draw on stereotypical imagery about young black men and boys as criminals and use drill to amplify pre-existing stereotypes. Right, so some, some very um, complex issues being covered here about uh, the powers at local level, responsibility for crime, role of the police, drill music, stereotypes. Dr Stanley? 
is there ever going to be a way to resolve this issue pragmatically? Because frankly, it's it's so very polarizing. And equally, you know, the the idea that drill music should be used in a court um, or shouldn't be used in a court because it sort of draws on stereotypical images of young black men. You know, again, it's incredibly sort of emotive stuff. You know, all the while we see dozens of London teenagers a year, if not more, dying. So it's, I don't think it's a good outlook, I'm afraid. No, and I think that's, as you say, Dr Stanley, I think 149 deaths on the streets of London uh, last year. So uh, horrific numbers, but very complex issues and one that we all need to engage with. And thank you, Charlotte, for your uh, expertise on that topic area. So we covered a look at um, then the local elections and the potential of what might happen in Scotland and what might happen in London. We looked at last week about uh, Keir Starmer and the uh, last week's fantasy team. Nobody could see Keir Starmer ever becoming prime minister. <laughs> but there has been some quite interesting things this week uh, relating to how Keir Starmer is trying to re-engage the so-called the Red Wall voters. Has anybody else seen, seen that story? Dr. Stanley, Dan, and Charlie Cobb. So the Charlies, so to speak, and Dr. McKenzie. <laughs> So two doctors in the room, neither of whom can uh, give a vaccine, but still, we, we value them very much. Um, let's go to Charlie Cobb. What have you seen, Charlie? It all stems from the 2019 election when kind of Labour was stuck with this choice where I guess it's very unusual to say they had sort of more sort of very liberal youth lefties in London to please. But they also had working class leave voters in those red belt areas that the Tories obviously won in December. And they kind of. Well, I guess there's lots of really reasons why Labour didn't win in 2019. But one of them being they kind of went for that. We're going to pander quite a lot to that that more liberal left. You know, if you look at all the, the faces that appeared during the campaign. You have Owen Jones, you have Ash Sarkar and stuff. It kind of gave that, that sort of more of that correct voting group. Um, and so now they've obviously realised their mistake. And we saw that the general election was a pretty landslide in all those northern uh, constituencies. And I guess, well, this is now their tactic to try and get back those working class voters. And you could say maybe it would, it would work. The problem with it, of course, is that we know that that's their plan, which is a bit of a mistake. However, that's got out. I'm not exactly sure. But I mean, now we, what was the calling it? Plastic patriotism, phony flag waving. It's also, a lot is also sort of divided the party as well. You've got that again, because the party is still split between, you know, working class Northern Labour MPs and, and that more sort of Southern liberal youth energy. You stumble on some very nice points there, Charlie, about the challenge of being in opposition, about how to get your potential ideas across and to formulate those ideas without the best ones being stolen. We've got then, this is the issue of Keir Starmer potentially trying to wrap himself in the flag um, to find the sort of the patriotic wing of the Labour Party. Dr. Stanley. For me, I think, I think Labour's um, disillusion with the working class and the feeling mute, being mutual really set in in the 90s, I think, with, with Tony Blair um, chasing the votes of Middle England um, very, very successfully, clearly, in 1997 and, and 2001, um, but with the expectation that the working class has nowhere else to go and therefore they will vote Labour. Um, and that was clearly the case, and it earned Tony Blair and the Labour Party three rather large majorities in 97, 2001 uh, and 2005. Um, However, since then, I think the, 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 work, the working class has clearly had, had other um, parties to vote for. I, I'd, I'd argue, firstly, actually, 
it was UKIP. I mean, UKIP in 2015 was the most working class supported party, obviously because of the the, the sort of Brexit issue, um, but also because they, they essentially spoke to people um, who felt that they'd been abandoned by the three major political parties. And now Boris Johnson, as a leader, whatever you think about him, um, he does seem to, you know, reach the parts that other conservatives don't reach. And he does seem to have some sort of connection. But the bigger question is actually, how does Labour gain power again? How does it win over those working class supporters that used to be Labour? Dr. Stone has posed some very interesting questions to you about how Labour is going to attract those voters back, particularly as the Conservatives have such a dominance over that idea of patriotism, or seemingly so. How are Labour going to do that? How is a patriotic left-wing party going to succeed, do we think? Dr Mackenzie? Um, I I just want to posit the fact that I think this is a bit of a miscalculation on the part of Keir Starmer, actually. Brexit vote has prompted a shift away from Labour, particularly in in areas like the Blythe Valley in in the North East. I actually am not convinced that the Brexit vote was about patriotism. I actually think it's about globalisation. When you go to some of these communities, you realise how completely decimated they have been as a result of the mining industry leaving those particular areas. That it's not so much about a patriotism, but it's about a sense that they are on the losing end of globalisation, that they've seen their jobs move abroad. And Brexit has given them a focus to um, find people to blame for that. And I'm concerned, I suppose, um, that this is just a colossal misunderstanding on the part of Keir Starmer, that to dress up in a union flag really does nothing to target and to tackle the very real problems that some of these rather depressed communities have faced. And I just wonder whether this is a slightly patronising attempt to show concern for traditional working class communities in the north. So listening to the wrong focus group once again, possibly. Char- Charlie, what, what were you going to say? Well, yeah, I think I agree with Thomas McKenzie in that. I think no one, there's very few people in this country, I think, who would just want to see their politician wave a flag. It's not more about that. I just think that maybe 2019's Labour may be sort of seen as a bit unpatriotic, also is representative of their sort of social views. They're, they're very sort of socially progressive, which is great for a large portion of the country. But obviously these northern voters, frankly, if you ask them, they're probably going to say lots of these issues that Labour put at the forefront of their campaign aren't really important to them. They wanted Brexit and they wanted sort of, you know, they wanted the party, whoever, to be elected to look after these often forgotten areas of the north. Well, I I wonder whether actually there is a place for Labour and its patriotism to sort of wrap its flag around the pride within the National Health Service, mm-hmm. pride within our key workers, the spirit of sort of volunteering we've seen throughout the sort of p- pandemic and sort of gauge their idea of patriotism more around that and pride in our national institutions as opposed to wrapping it in a flag and talking about Waterloo, for example. <laughs> Dr. Stanley? No, actually, I think there is a place for um, a Labour Party that will address, as Dr. McKenzie said, um, some of the sort of major socio-economic issues that have that have sort of devastated those those communities of South Wales, mm-hmm. um, ex-mining communities of the North East, all the way down to sort of Nottinghamshire. So I think Keir Starmer is saying making all the right noises, but I do think you know that the heart and soul of the Labour Party still does belong to you know Emily Thornbury and those who sort of sneer at White Van Man. I really do.
So some issues, therefore, for the Labour Party to address, but it's certainly be very wrong to write off the Labour Party as an electoral force. Um, we know how quickly these things can change. And I, I'd just like to finish, and as we have uh, three young members um, of the animal community here, if you could put Charlotte and Charlie and Archie, if there was one policy that Labour could enact that would attract you to vote for the party, what would it be? Well, living up in Scotland, it's slightly different for me, but I know a very popular policy um, of free university um, attracts a lot of young voters for the SNP up here. So I think um, purely from a selfish point of view, at the age of 18, that would be pretty attractive. So, therefore, the issue of yes to uh, free tuition fees, Charlie Cobb, the unlikely event that you'd vote Labour at one point in your life, what would attract you? Oh, I wouldn't put it that unlikely. But um, <laughs> coming back to the centre when it comes to economic policy, I think, is, is, is a key thing they need to do. OK, so Charlie would like to see a little shift to the centre. Archie would like his university paid for by us hardworking taxpayers. <laughs> uh, Charlotte? Um, as someone who cares a lot about the Black Lives Matter movement um, in general, I'd like to see maybe reforms made to the policing. Um, for example, like in the Lamy review that was published, I think, in 2017, maybe going back to that, maybe them, like Labour using those policies. Okay, so issues of social justice for uh, Charlotte. A switch more to the centre for Charlie Cobb economically and Archie with his uh, tuition fees. Okay, well that's a, that's a lot of uh, a lot of areas covered there for domestically, from uh, mayoral elections through to Nicola Sturgeon and Alex Salmon uh, kissing or not kissing in Charlie Cobb's uh, newspaper article, uh, from the tragedy of uh, the stabbings in London. What about on a different stage? What about in America? Well, I think. The big news, I think, at the moment is the impeachment trial in the Senate of, uh, of the well-known man Donald J. Trump. Um, I mean, well, the trial's not going to be successful, that's for sure. After last week, 45 people voted saying that 45 Republicans all said that it wasn't even that the trial itself wasn't even constitutional. So the fact that they've said that means there's, there's no chance that, frankly, unless something big happens or comes out during the trial, that it's going to be successful. But um, I, what else is of purpose, I guess? I can see why, obviously, Democrats would want it to pass. Some more moderate Republicans would want it to pass to stop Trump ever having an electoral future. We've heard about him uh, potentially starting a third party, which I think if, if he does that, then that is the end of the Republican Party, frankly, because that would seriously wave them goodbye. I think it, it kind of has to be one or the other. Either has to be successful, gets, out of, gets Trump done, you know, pushes him to the back, stops him having impacts on the Republican Party, stops his electoral future, or they shouldn't have gone from it at the beginning because it is stirred up a lot of divisiveness. You know, we've heard Biden's message about unity, about bringing the country together, whereas I guess you could say this is kind of contradictory to that. So I don't know. It's kind of in that sort of middle ground where it's not really going to be successful unless something big changes. And I think it's just going to sort of, it's going to overshadow Biden's first two weeks. Okay, so the context of this is for the first time in American history, uh, somebody out of office is being impeached, and for the first time, somebody for the second time is being impeached. We managed, Dr. McKenzie, to get through last week's podcast without talking about Big Don, but we failed this week. So what are are your thoughts (laughs) on the impeachment? Charlie mentioned um, the sort of constitutional element, and this, for me, is one of the most interesting things about this second impeachment. Um, 
Trump has obviously claimed that his trial is unconstitutional because he's left office. So that's one potentially uh, unconstitutional issue. I mean, of course, the Constitution doesn't address this particular eventuality, but Trump is arguing this is unconstitutional. The the second constitutional issue is um, that this impeachment trial is not going to be presided over by the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, which is what the Constitution sets out. Instead, because this trial is of a former president, um, Patrick Leahy, the, um, he's the longest serving Democratic senator, he holds this title of president pro tempore in the Senate, he's going to preside. Um, so that's the, the second thing. And the third um, sort of constitutional issue that this raises is that there's been an argument that some... Um, that the Senate, which is, of course, Democrat controlled, um, just uh, they may well try to um, prevent Trump from holding any federal office in the future by invoking part of the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, which is an amendment that was brought in after the Civil War. And it forbids anyone who has, and I quote, engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the United States. It forbids them from holding federal office. Um, So it'd be quite interesting to see if they try and invoke that particular component of the Constitution. If that does happen, I suspect there will be a a legal dispute in response. But for me, one of the most interesting things about this trial is the constitutional issues that it raises. So he is, as Dr. McKenzie said, he is being uh, impeached because of the potential incitement of insurrection, I believe. which, of course, those who saw him uh, after the election challenging the result, talking about stopping the steel, uh, fight like hell, sorry if that was my American accent, uh, for example, would point to suggest, therefore, he has a strong case to answer. Of course, others would point to the fact that um, he incited, well, he, he suggested his uh, supporters protest peacefully. So, very interesting issue. And something else about Donald Trump this week. Archie, what did you notice? Yeah, well, he has found his way back to social media. Um, obviously, he got banned from most of the platforms. Um, I mean, most notably was Twitter for inciting violence. But he's he's found his way back. It's onto a cycle gab. I think that's how you say it. I can't say I've ever heard of it. But he's um, he's used it to respond to the um, impeachment saying, really, that it's, it's a load of rubbish, which we'd expect. He, he is also, Arch, if you haven't noticed, he started following Oundle Politics Twitter account. <laughs> um, so we're all, we're all very grateful for that. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure that's true, sir. I'm going to call you out. Well, fake news right there. Donald Trump has been seen in the politics department. We have photographic evidence of that. So I don't know what you're talking about, Charlie Cobb. Um, but just on this um, issue of Trump and the way he uses social media, I find this genuinely fascinating. And... Um, Uh, I came across a a study that had been done and he's identified five main themes which have emerged in Trump's tweets. Now, I find this really interesting because these five themes are essentially populism. And, you know, populism is something that I have a particular uh, interest in. And first of all, this idea that there's this dangerous other, it's this us and them rhetoric that the United States is being attacked from some kind of invader. The second thing is this appeal to the people. Donald Trump saying that real Americans can see this problem that exists. Thirdly, he's setting himself up as a champion of the people. He's uniquely uh, qualified to stop this invasion. 
And then this anti-establishment sentiment saying that, you know, the establishment, remember he talked about draining the swamp, uh, the establishment is preventing him from being that champion of the people. And that last theme that the US is in mortal danger, this actually harks back to nationalism. This is the idea that the nation is the utmost good and it is being attacked by these others that are coming from outside. And I think Trump is at the very least and has done since 2016, indulged in this populist rhetoric that we've referred to before, um, which explains a lot of his support from certain sections of society. And, and what about the idea, uh, Charlie, you've re referenced this before, what about the idea of actual fact that uh, Donald Trump was banned from Twitter? Well, yeah, again, I think that, again, is, is quite a tough one because, hey, it's it's a private business, it's a private platform, Twitter, they can ban who they like. But then do you come to a point where you have a certain amount of responsibility knowing that you are the main sort of, you are the main platform for the elected uh, leader of the free world of, you know, such an important country. And you know, this is what he's saying. This is what he wants to say. Do you have a certain responsibility to say, well, this is the elected leader. I know that he reaches a big platform with a big audience with this platform. He should have a right to say exactly what he was kind of elected to say. And so, of course, his banning from Twitter, all it did was really, really rile up his supporters even more. Well, if, if you're someone who thinks, look, this election was stolen by, you know, the elites, the people that control big tech, people that control the media, you're just going to think, well, this is, you know, more evidence of that. They're, they're now suddenly silencing the person who's the only one saying the truth, you can just see how that sort of worsens it. And what about, so, and I'll, I'll put it to, to the, the three youngest members of our Magnificent Six today. Uh, where, where do you get your information from? Yeah, well, it has actually changed. So obviously, um, I do check the news a lot, but I'd say social media, especially Twitter, actually. I actually, I'm the opposite of Archie. I think social media is like, is, is really dangerous to get um, all the information from. I, I think what I really recommend is the Financial Times. It, it, I do find it to be very sort of unbiased somehow. I think very few places it really are quite unbiased. I think the BBC in all its flaws is quite good as well. Charlie, we're getting sponsored by the Sun, so you can't say that. <laughs> oh, sorry. I also read the Sun nonstop. Social media, I think, I think it is quite dangerous to do because all you do is follow people that you like to see the content of and all of a sudden you're going into the depths of only looking at stuff you agree with and then you're in a real sort of problem there. Okay, so a little bit of, so you find the Financial Times gives some degree of balance to there. What about you, Charlotte? Um, I'm like Archie, so I get loads of my information from Twitter, but also I have to admit I get some of my information from TikTok. <laughs> there are like many verified news accounts. So, so, so Dr. Stanley, Dr. McKenzie, do you, are you, where do you, are you, are you in, or in any way TikToking? <laughs> I'm, I'm not a TikToker, no, I'm, I'm not, <laughs> not a big user of social media, I'm afraid. I like my periodicals, so I, I tend to, you know, have a bit of a sort of a, a breadth of political views. Private Eye, which is, you know, left-leaning slightly, I'd say. The Spectator, which is right-leaning. Um, so, yeah, I think it's important to, to, to try and get that balance, and I think avoid what sort of Charlie alluded to, which is sort of being drawn into that um, echo chamber which uh, which social media can do to you and dr mckenzie tiktoking or not i'm not sure i even completely understand what tiktok is so no that's not really for me but um you know like dr stanley i think he's made a good point about trying to get balance and i think for me it's important to read a range of news sources or listen to a range of news items i also quite like um sort of more academic journalism like um the conversation is really good 
um, peer-reviewed stuff like the article. But for me, the key thing is to try and get a range and get a bit of balance, really. So if you're looking at US news, you want Fox as much as you want Vox, I think. Fox the box, Charlie? Yeah, I completely agree with Dr. McKenzie. I think that is the problem with social media is mm. that algorithms that are built in is specifically to do the following, which is, oh, we know you like that, so we'll show you more of stuff that you like. So obviously when you're scrolling mm. through TikTok and you see a video that you agree with, you like it, um, and so it's only your homepage on Instagram is now full of stuff that you like. They know you will like. Everyone is quite, it's quite dangerous. And it was to, to bring us back to where we were, we were about talking about 10 minutes ago or so, was the significant um, advantage the Conservative Party gained mm. in 2019 over its use of Facebook, yeah. having been so derelict in its um, use of social media in 2017, mm -hmm. which seemed to have an impact. Yes, Archie? Yeah, I was just going to say, um, I've noticed since Arundel Politics got Twitter, there's been quite a drastic increase in um, <laughs> the usage of Twitter for newsfeed. <laughs> there we go. Nice, nice plug from Archie. Um, excellent. So I think that we've covered a huge range of topic areas from both domestic and international, the role of social media to uh, the relationship between Nicola Sturgeon and Alex Salmon to the likelihood of Sadiq Khan being re-elected to the issue of the Labour Party trying to uh, re-engage with the Red Wall voters. So traditionally, Dr. McKenzie, well, I say traditionally, but we've, um, we've only done it once before. But our second podcast, what we're going to do is ever, we're going to end with a who would we send into space section. So out of the week's news, who has sufficiently annoyed us, upset us, potentially from the world of politics, but mine is not going to be from the world of politics, who we would send into space. Archie, who's going into space for you? I'm sorry to, to do this, but I have to... Um send Eddie Jones into space. <laughs> no, you, don't, you do not get to send Eddie Jones into space. An Englishman gets to send Eddie Jones into space. Archie, you do not get to, but fair enough, we'll accept that. Charlie, who's going into space for you? I'd actually like to play a reverse card here and say Joe Root should go to space, but for positive reasons, to sort of be an example, the leader of the human race for what has been a fantastic five days as captain of the England cricket team and as a beautiful 200, I think. The stories and attention he'd received from going to space would just be adequate for a man like him. There we go. So Archie is sending Eddie Jones up to the aliens. Charlie is sending uh, Joe Root on his 100th test match up into space. <laughs> Charlotte, any thoughts who you might like to send up into space? Um, I would personally like to send Donald Trump into space <laughs> because I feel like his influence on Earth isn't very good at the moment. So, yeah. So Donald Trump is in that spaceship. There's plenty of room still left. Dr. Stanley, any thoughts on that? <laughs> yeah, I, I'm going to go for a slightly obscure one, if you don't mind. And I'm going to send the staff, or at least the security staff, of HMP Stocken, Rutland, into space. The reason, the reason being this, uh, is someone's ended up in the prison in Stockton uh, and there's been a massive sort of explosion of COVID there. Uh, and so Rutland is, is being sort of wrongly um, besmirched as the COVID capital of the UK. Thanks for an outbreak in the prison. So I'm going to send the prison staff to, to space. And they're, they're, they're there along with Donald Trump, who uh, he's already had COVID, so he'll be fine. Um, Joe Root, we don't want him getting COVID. And um, Eddie Jones, I'll reserve my judgment there. Dr. McKenzie. <laughs> Um, well, I'm afraid mine's not going to be quite as, you know, intellectually stimulating as what's gone before. I'm going to put into space Sam from Married at First Sight Australia because 
I've been very unimpressed with his illicit flirtation with Innes while he's still married to Elizabeth. So Sam is going straight up in that rocket. This this is outrageous behaviour from Sam. He goes into space. <laughs> Isn't it? Um, and I, yes, it is. And I, I, I mean, I can't, I'm afraid Archie has stolen my thunder. He's charged right in there. <laughs> going into space for me as well is Eddie Jones. And I just ask myself, if Marcelo Bielsa coached the England rugby side, how exciting would that be? <laughs> but there we go. That was, that was the week that was, that was the handle politics in the conversation. I was uh, Mr. Hine. I was Dr. McKenzie. I was Dr. Stanley. I was, and still am, Charlie Cobb. <laughs> I was Archie Starway. I was Charlotte Finney. And thank you all for listening.